I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to a unique place because we're going to look at Christmas, but we're going to look at Christmas from a totally different vantage point. We're going to go all the way to the book of Revelation. Wow. Because in the book of Revelation, we're going to see Christmas from a different vantage point. You know, some of us know the story of the Wizard of Oz. Remember that? Anybody know this? How many have probably seen the show, show The Wizard of Oz? And all of a sudden in the movie, you know, Dorothy and her little dog end up in uh, Oz, and she's trying to get back to Kansas, right? And so they're off to see the wizard who lives in the city of Oz, and they're all wanting something. One of them wants a new heart, a new brain. You know, she wants to go home. And when they get there, the wizard is behind there, the smoke and all the stuff that's going on, terrifying them, and the little dog runs over and pulls the screen. And here they see this little old man back there pulling all the cords and everything else, you know, right? And, you know, Dorothy gets really upset with him. He's scaring all these people, manipulating and trying to control them. But, you know, today I want to pull the screen back because there is a worldwide conspiracy. There really is but it's probably a lot different than most people. I mean, there's all kinds of people out there with all kinds of conspiracies, but this one we know is a true, ultimate conspiracy. It's a spiritual one, and that's the one we need to understand. And when we look at the Christmas story, so often, what do we do? We kind of focus in on all the things that we need to do. How many know? It's Christmas time. Gotta get the tree, gotta decorate the tree, we gotta bake, we gotta buy gifts. How many know that Christmas many times becomes an added stressor in an already busy life. Isn't that true? Come on, let's be honest. Can it get like that? I mean, we don't t take time to really think about it. And, and, and when we really do begin to reflect about Christmas, we know it's about Jesus. How many here go, yeah, I get it. It's about Jesus. We all say that. But when we think of Christmas, we always look at it from the human side, the human predicament, right? We think of the story of an unplanned pregnancy. How many know Mary did not have, did not have that in her agenda, right? That was unplanned. That's an unplanned pregnancy. And then you got a confused groom-to-be, like, you know, Joseph trying to figure out how in the world did Mary get pregnant. Then we have a hasty trip to Bethlehem to pay some taxes they didn't even plan on. Are we catching on? I mean, everything about this story is, is kind of the human predicament. How many can relate to this? You know, how many people have had an unwanted pregnancy or, you know, they questioned their relationship or they ended up having to go to some trip that they didn't plan on but somebody passed away or something happened in their life. All of a sudden, you know, we're eating up, you know, money that, we're, that we really don't have but we need to go anyways and so we're going into debt. Come on, let's be a little bit honest about this. We relate to this human predicament. I mean, shepherds coming to worship the child, later the magi bringing gifts. You know, at times, it's, it's, it's marvelous, it's wonderful, it's challenging, it's overwhelming, and, and generally, we see it strictly from a natural point of view. But what we don't see is what's shaping the story, what's behind the scenes, what's behind the curtain, the spiritual world that's happening around us. I would argue that what's happening in the spiritual arena is actually affecting what's happening in your life and my life every single day. So let's pull back the curtain. Let's see this Christmas from a totally different vantage point. Let's see it from the book of Revelation's vantage point, which is a totally different look at the story. As a matter of fact, the book of Revelation is a very fascinating book. You know, if you were to look at it, and I believe a lot of people have struggled with it because of its genre, its literary devices that it's using. You know, it's 
called apocalyptic. You go, that's a very fancy name. For what? Well, apocalyptic literature is just highly dramatizing accounts using powerful images to capture our imagination. That's what it's about. As a matter of fact, when you understand why the Jewish people reverted to this kind of literature is because they were in a minority position, under persecution, being under the thumb of other people. So they were writing in a sense, in a way, that they understood. They used these amazing imagery from the Old Testament to explain powerful truths. And then they were dealing with the issue of evil. How many know we struggle with evil as well? Why is there so much evil in the world? You know, Robert Wall talks a little bit about the problem of theodicy. And you say, well, what is that? Theodicy is really the vindication of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. Or let me phrase it this way. It's really, if God is so good, why is there so much evil in our world? That's another way of framing it. Anybody ever ask you that question? Anybody ever challenge you with that? If God's so good, why is there so much evil? Well, let's talk about it. Let's not run away from it. Actually, I would argue back to the unbeliever, the fact that you're admitting there's so much evil would suggest that there has to be good. It's suggesting the very argument that you think you're denying. But the reality is there is evil in our world. And one of the problems is that people don't always experience the triumph of God over evil. More often than not, what they experience is suffering and injustice. Isn't that true? How many say that that's true? In our world, there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of injustice, and every once in a while, we've asked the question, where are you, God? Or how long will this continue, God? Right? We've asked those questions. That's reality. That's the truth. We need to understand that. Uh, You know, historians... Basically, uh, well, Dr. Craig Kuster says, historians have noted that the revelation story of the woman and the dragon, this is the chapter we're looking at, chapter 12, has a plot line that's quite similar to other stories of good versus evil that actually circulated in the ancient world. I don't know if you know that. Let me show you what I'm talking about. One of these is the Greek story. It's mythology. This is their part of their mythology of a woman named Leto who became pregnant by the god Zeus. This is Greek mythology now. Okay, follow the story. Because you're going to see a parallelism to the biblical story. Because a lot of times the world actually has the seeds of truth in some of their mythology. Okay, so don't, don't be disturbed by this. I'm not preaching mythology. I'm just explaining something so you'll see. Now, Leto's adversary was a ferocious snake snake-like dragon named Python who tried to kill her to prevent the birth of Zeus's children. And, and when she bore these children, one was named Apollo and the other was named Artemis. Okay, you follow this? And both were given arrows as gifts in order for them to slay the dragon. And Apollo achieved that end. He slayed the dragon. So in a dominant culture of Roman imperialism, which is the time in which this letter is framed, this is the first century, Rome is in charge, the emperor stepped into the role of Apollo. It's interesting. They see themselves as Apollo. Isn't that crazy? And were seen as the ones who were overcoming the forces of chaos represented by the dragon. In other words, they saw themselves as bringing stability and law and order into their world. That's how they perceived themselves. Everybody has a script, you know. This is theirs. Virgil, the Roman historian, compared the rise of Augustus 
to the birth of Apollo. He called Augustus the son of God. Now just think about this for a minute. <clears throat> Here you are, Christians saying Jesus is the son of God, and you have the rest of society saying the emperor is the son of God. And you have people worshiping Augustus as the son of God. And to bring your loyalty to the Roman Empire, you had to give a little incense to acknowledge that Augustus was the son of God. But how many know some Christians didn't want to do that because they said that's not true? Augustus is not the, we're not talking about a son, we're talking about the son of God. No, no, no. Jesus is the only son of God and we will not do that. Can you see how persecution breaks out? Now, it's not over the whole entire empire, but we see isolated cases of it throughout the ancient Near Eastern world. Some cities were far more devoted to that practice than other communities were. So in John's eyes, the destructive forces of the dragon operating within the empire is not being fought by the emperor, but rather the emperor is the dragon's ally. He's the beast. Isn't that interesting? So now, how do you, how, if John was to say this, how many know he'd be in a lot of trouble? Actually, he ended up in exile anyways, but you can understand why there was a tension between the church and the society in which they were living in. How many see the tension? Can you see it? I think we need to understand it. There, do you know there is a tension in our world today? And we see it. So, it's interesting to me that in chapter 11, it ends with the fact that Jesus Christ has now become the Lord, the world has now become the Lord's and his Messiah. So, if you are like me, I'm a sequential chronological thinker, it would seem like that would be the end of the book. But chapter 12 to chapters 22 actually continue on, and you're going, what is going on? Well, it looks like they're coming around again to explain a very important idea, and it's simply this. The idea is that how does God address evil in our world? How is God gonna destroy the beast, the antichrist, the devil? How is he gonna destroy death itself? So the, the last part of the book of Revelations actually deals with that issue. So. I think it's dealing with this cosmic battle. That's why I call this message the cosmic Christmas, the hidden story. Because a lot of people, you know, when we look at the Christmas story, they go, oh, yeah, I know the story, right? You know, Jesus is born in Mary. That's it, in the little town of Bethlehem. I'm going, no, no, it's a bigger story than that. There's a backdrop story. There's one that's behind the screens. There's a, the spiritual side of the story that you and I need to see and understand. So last night, my grandchildren were over, and I'm doing the devotional with them. They call me Poppy. So it's Poppy, it's Ariella, it's Ezra. And so they say to me, because we have a story Bible, they say, I say, pick a story from the Bible you want me to read. And they say, let's do the birth of Jesus. I said, great. So I'm looking in the story Bible, but you know what I find? No, I was looking for the shepherds coming to see Jesus right on the day of his birth, but that story wasn't in the story Bible. It was the Magi. And so we had an amazing theological discussion last night. <laughs> because I had to tell them as we're reading the story that this did not happen on Christmas Day. No. It actually happened almost two years later. 
But you see, it, because, you know, it says there, they came to the child in a house. They didn't come to a baby in a manger. So I'm explaining to them, this happened a few years later, so they get the story. These guys are becoming brilliant theologians. So they said, oh, Jesus was a toddler. I said, you've got it. Absolutely right. Jesus was a toddler. Then the next thing out of their mouth is, did Jesus talk to the Magi? I said, well, he's two years old or about that age. He might have said something. I don't know how much communication went on, but you know. So we're having this amazing conversation. So I, I tell the story to the, my prayer partners this morning. First thing is, why is it then that we put the Magi with Jesus? I said, tradition. Now you have to remember in the Middle Ages, the church was primarily, people were primarily illiterate. Did you realize that? And so to communicate truth, a lot of times they did it in art. So if you're making a stained glass window, you just put all that stuff together. And over time, it just puts it, it becomes a one concept. You know, all the art flows in a certain direction. But if we're gonna look at it as a literary piece and as a practical historical story, they didn't happen at the same time. But now as we're looking at Revelation 12, I believe we're looking at the story of Jesus and the whole story that led up to the visit with the Magi and what happened with Herod. We're gonna see that as we look at the story. And I think we're gonna deal with this cosmic battle that's occurring, and it's still happening today. You and I are in an amazing uh, battle right now, a spiritual battle. So this Christmas story is not just something that happened back then. This is something that has huge ramifications for even the moment in which we're living. So I wanna take a look today at two keys to living a victorious life. And the first one is understanding the source of evil. If we don't grasp where evil originates, we find ourselves fighting with people. How many go, that's true? You know, what's going on today is we feel like we're fighting an ideological battle with a lot of people. And we, we look at these people, we go, what's their problem? Can't they get it, you know? But how many know people need to be freed from darkness? That's the truth. And many who are propagating evil, they're championing evil, they're actually blind to what they're doing. They don't see it as evil. Does that make sense? They don't get it. Uh, many people today think they're fighting for what's best for humanity. That's why they're so ardent in their pursuit of it. They're, you know, they're, they're fighting for freedom in their minds, but it's not freedom uh, from sin, it's freedom to sin. And People want to remove the social stigma of sin. Isn't that true? Now, we don't even use the word sin anymore. It's even gone from our vocabulary. But the problem is that anything that doesn't bring glory to God is a sin. And so what, the, what it does is it creates a consequence. Whenever we sin, here's the problem. Even if we rename it and we get rid of all the stigma, we're still left with the problem of it. Because the end result of sin is always alienation. It's always been that way. What, I, what do you mean by alienation? It means that it, you know, it, it breaks down human and a divine relationship. We're no longer connecting with God. We're no longer connecting with people the way we want to. It's not like, you know, we can't understand why we're having problems in our relationships. I'm gonna tell you why. When you have sin in a relationship, you're gonna have alienation. It's just the natural consequence of it. And so today we see more brokenness in people's relationships than ever before. Isn't that true? You know, I'm just talking about, not even just marriages, I'm talking about all kinds of relationships. There's so much brokenness, so much heartache, so many people 
you know, hurting one another. And, they, and sometimes the people are even hurting the person they love. They don't even want to do it, but they're doing it. Sometimes unknowingly. Isn't that true? So I think we need to understand something. We're, sometimes we think that the problem we're dealing with is people. And I'm going, no, it's not people, guys. Paul very clearly tells us in the book of Ephesians, we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. Our battle is not against people. That's not the issue. These people are actually a pawn in the bigger chessboard, if I can say it that way. There's a curtain behind the screen. There's a power, an evil power. There's a demonic force that's influencing the way people are seeing life and thinking about life, and they're under its control, and they don't even realize it. They think they're free, but they're not free. And we're not wrestling with them. We're not wrestling with flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities and powers and rulers and darkness in heavenly places. Daryl Johnson goes on to say, the text is answering a question generated by the claims of the gospel. The gospel declares that in Jesus Christ, the living Lord has won the victory over all the forces that threaten to undo us. But if this gospel, this good news, this true news, why are things so bad? It's a great question, right? If, as the gospel proclaims, evil has been defeated, why does evil still wreak havoc in our world? That is a great question. Why do we still have evil if Jesus defeated it at Calvary? Why is there still evil? What we need to understand is that we are living in a world that's alienated from God. We're living in a state called Babylon, the world. It's a system. The spirit that's now at work over the system. The spirit that's at work in the, in the hearts and minds of those who are living lives of disobedience. Paul says we were all living in Babylon until we came to faith in Christ, until we became born of the spirit. We were stuck in that, that place. It doesn't matter. You know, move away from all of the... Babylon is any, any place, I, I like what Robert Wall says, it's every place where a congregation of believers struggle to live for God. It's every place. The evils found there are found everywhere and at any time before Christ returns. In other words, the reason why Jesus needs to come back to this planet is humanity itself cannot solve all of its own problems. That's the reason why he has to come back. The reason why he has to come back, even as believers, I, I see people struggling all the time. It's true. It's the nature of things. So let's take the story that John is paint, painting for us. Here's the woman he's describing in his vision. It starts in Revelation 12.1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Quite a picture. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Now, who is this woman? Churches, uh, theologians, they've had great discussions on this. Well, we know a number of things. We know one, one picture is that this woman has to be Israel. I believe that is true. It is, it's a picture of Israel. But later on, we're gonna see she's also a picture of Mary. And I'm gonna say it's not a conflict. I think both those ideas are true. Look at what Joseph said in the Old Testament. Remember, he had a dream. Joseph in the Old Testament had a dream. And in his dream, he told it to his brothers. He says, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, his dad interprets the dream. Jo Jacob, 
When he told his father as well as his brothers, father rebuked him and he said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? So who is Joseph and Jacob and his brothers? Well, Jacob's name got changed to Israel. He became the father of all people of Israel descent, all Jewish people. Those brothers were the 12 tribes of Israel. So we know that this woman represents Israel, okay? You following with me on this? But can I tell you something, that when the Old, when the Old Testament stops, I'm gonna use a word, it's truncated. It's, it's an abrupt ending. It's not completely done. They're waiting for something. If you talk to Jewish people that understand the Old Testament, they'll tell you they're waiting for a Messiah because that's what's promised through the whole Old Testament. As believers, we're saying it has happened. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He has come. He has fulfilled the Old Testament. Are we following this? So now the story of Mary and Jesus comes right into play here because look what starts happening. We get the story of the dragon. Um, and his story, we pick it up in verse three. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now, how many know that this apocalyptic literature, you know, it's interesting language. Isn't it designed to capture your imagination? How many read this stuff and you go, wow, this is amazing. You got a dragon with all these heads. I mean, this is a lot more, this is a lot more stimulating than just reading about, you know, Jesus and Mary on a donkey, you know what I mean? All those kind of stuff. How many are getting the idea? This is, this is a whole different way of telling the story. Does anybody pick this up? How many, how many go, this is probably a lot different than the, the story we hear at Christmas time. You know, you know, Mary has an angel, meets the angel, then all of a sudden Joseph finds out she's pregnant, and then they find out they have to be taxed. They head down to you know, the town of Bethlehem. You know, there's no room in the inn. That's the Christmas story, right? Well, this is how John's explaining it. How many go, this is way more intense? Does anybody agree with me? This is a way more intense rendition of the Christmas story. How many go, Pastor, you're right. This is way more intense. Okay, it's capturing our imaginations. Now we got a tail from the dragon sweeping by and all of a sudden stars are flying out of heaven. They're being flung to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. How many go, that's a totally different telling of the story at Christmas time? It's a terrifying story, she says. Yeah, it's capturing my interest. Uh, what's this all about? And then John kind of gives us a little interpretation. Well, who is this dragon? You know, if we don't get biblical interpretation, people fill in the blanks, and they usually get the wrong answers. Thank God, I'm glad he put the blank in here. He's gonna give us the answer. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. Now we know who this dragon is. Now, can you imagine if the Bible hadn't said that, how many interpretations we'd have of this dragon? I don't know. There'd be a lot. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So now we know the stars are the angels. So now we know that some of the angels in heaven actually were in revolt with Satan against God and they were cast down to the earth. Hmm. Leon Morris writes regarding this dragon. Because he talks about, you know, what do these horns represent? And you know, the Bible talks about horns. It's representing strength and power. When you're reading in the Old Testament, you know, this animal had horns and he crashes into another animal. It's talking about strength and authority and power. 
So he says, evil is strong. How many know evil is strong? Sure it is. The point of the seven heads is not immediately obvious, but in antiquity, several terrible beasts were said to have a multiplicity of heads. Like, again, if you go watch uh, some of these, like, uh, uh, some of this Greek mythology and they're starting to fight these beasts. How many know they usually have more than one head? They're a multi-headed. And you know when you're cutting off one head, there's another head coming at you. It's a, how many have ever seen shows like that? Anybody, be, anybody recognize this? This is in Greek mythology. They have many heads, okay. The thought may be that of the immense vitality of such an animal. It's very hard to kill these animals. In the same way, opposition to the church and the powers of evil is persistent. Now, how many have discovered that? You know, it just never ends. No sooner do you solve this problem than you have this problem. How many have discovered that in your life? There's always a problem. Anybody figure this out? You go, why in the world? Don't we ever get a rest from this evil? And the answer is there's no rest. The, the evil is very pervasive. It's just everywhere. Uh, you know, I, uh, Pastor Mark and I, we have a little chat once in a while. And he, you know, I'm telling him, I said, Mark, just relax. I go, uh, Things are never as bad as they appear, but never as good as you think they are. It's just the nature of the work. Well, that's the truth. It's actually what helps you balance you out because you know what? If you get worked up over the bad things that are happening, you'll be worked up all the time. You'll be living in a worked up state. I'm just being honest. Or you could be like the ostrich with his head in the sand and just go, everything is just wonderful, Pastor. And you're living in total denial. Meanwhile, you know, things are going on over here that are terrible. Come on now. So how do, you, how do you maintain some sort of a balance? You go, I say, hey, we're fighting a hydra. We're fighting this multi-headed monster. There's evil out there. And some of us, we go, is there even a battle, pastor? <laughs> well, I'm telling you, if you think like that, you're already having problems because you're probably defeated. That's the truth. You know, the mo how many have figured this out? The moment you really start trying to live for God, it just seems like all hell breaks loose. Anybody figured that out? Because now you're stirring it up, and we'll see that in a minute. Leon Morris continues on, and he says, no sooner is it defeated in one place than it breaks out elsewhere. We should not overlook the fact that the beast, Satan's henchman, henchman, also has seven heads and ten horns and is scarlet in color. So the beast is like Satan, you know. We should understand that the evil we see on earth is made in the image of Satan. Wow. And the goodness and the grace and the beauty is made in the image of God. How's that? We, gotta, we have to understand this. Pick the right side. That's all I say. So the child's now about to be devoured by the dragon. We read in verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Now, I don't know how your mind works, but as soon as I read that, I go, I know where that's found. That's found in Psalm, chapter two, uh, Psalm 2, verse 8. Doesn't your mind work like that? Click. There goes a Bible verse. Bang. There. I know where that is. And I know what's going on. I know Psalm 2. You know what Psalm 2 is about? That's the psalm that says the nations are in revolt against God and his anointed. They're raging against God and his anointed. And the Bible says, and God is laughing at their puny efforts to kind of be at odds with him. He says, I'm going to send my son, and he's going to rule with an iron scepter. What does that mean? God's rule will be complete. Do you know we're coming? You know, I was talking to one of our congregants. They said, yeah, I'm believing in a one-world government. Everyone panics, you know, because they're thinking of the Antichrist. But actually, when Christ comes, it will be a one-world government. 
And it will be an authoritative government. He will be the leader. And we won't be walking around, I have rights, you know, Jesus. <laughs> I think we gotta settle this stuff. Not my will, but thine be done, right? Come on now. I'm just pointing this out to us. And it says, and her child was snatched up to God and to, and, and to his throne. So all of a sudden, John, you know, it's interesting. He, he abbreviates the whole story. I mean, what happened to Jesus living on earth, doing all the miracles, suffering and dying, crucified, resurrected? He's just descending. But you talk about cutting the story short. But that's the point. John is making a certain point here. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. In other words, you know what? Good is going to be rescued. We need to hear that. It's going to overcome. So here, well, let's pick up the story here in the natural now. Go back behind the screen, close the curtain. Let's go back to earth. Boom, Matthew chapter two. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Well, it's interesting. How many know what Egypt is like? It's just a big... It's a big river called the Nile with a little bit of vegetation on the side of the river and everything else is desert. Does everybody know it? It's wilderness out there. It's gonna fit the story here because he's gonna save the woman and bring her into the wilderness. He says, stay there until I tell you for Herod is gonna search for the child to kill him. So this is now the serpent trying to kill the child. But, you know, Matthew's story, it's just King Herod is full of insecurities trying to kill a rival to the throne. That's what it looks like. But when John tells the story, he goes, oh, it's way bigger than that. It's, a, it's the dragon himself out to consume the woman and destroy the child at birth. How many get a picture? It's the same story, but it's just being told totally differently. How many go, the story in Revelation is far more dramatic. Does anybody feel that's a little more dramatic? You got this big serpent ready. Does anybody see it? It's far more dramatic. Revelation 12 is a Christmas text. I love Eugene Peterson in his book, Distant Thunder. He says this, uh, it's St. John's, oops, I had it twice and let's go back. It's St. John's spirit-appointed task to supplement the work of St. Matthew and St. Luke so that the nativity cannot be sentimentalized into coziness, nor domesticated into worldliness. Well, what's he mean by that? He's saying, you know, when we listen to the Christmas story, pretty soon it's about the cute little baby Jesus. Come on now, we've domesticated the story. You know, we have the little play with the two cute little kids coming here, Mary and Joseph, right? Carrying the plastic doll that represents Jesus. We've, we've now... We've got it all nicely packaged, you know, and we put them in some little bit of straw there, you know. No animals. And the smell, sanitized. I mean, let's be honest, when Jesus was born, it probably stunk. You see what we're doing to the story? We, we make it so that it looks cute, it's nice, we love it, it's sanitized, and it doesn't impact our lives. But when you hear the story from Revelation, there's a dragon ready to devour somebody, that's kind of got you a little bit more nervous. Doesn't it do, does that to me? You know, this is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it's the nativity story all the same. Jesus' birth excites more than wonder, it excites evil. Isn't that true? 
That's what I said when you're a Christian. Once the moment you say, okay, God, I'm giving you my entire life. I'm going for it. That's what I said. All hell breaks loose. I'm serious with God now. The devil goes, yeah, he is serious, and we're going to do everything we can to stop this person from really getting going. So a lot of Christians, they go, oh, you, you don't really want to really get red hot for God because it creates problems in your life. You know, I, I, I do, come on. That's how people think. I've been a Christian for a long time now. Listen, folks, we need to get red hot for God because the only way that evil is going to back down is if goodness rises up. The only way that evil is going to be pushed back in our lives is if we stand up and say, hey, I'm going to go for God and I don't care what the outcome is. And the moment you do that, evil backs down. Isn't that interesting how fast evil can back down? See, most of us only see evil ascending because we're backing down. But the moment we stand up, evil backs down. We need people to stand up. But let me point out to one of the problems that we have about standing up is we, we, as a culture, we're so individualistic. But when I read the book of Ephesians on spiritual warfare, on the armor of God, it sounds like I'm getting dressed, you know, in the armor myself. Romans never even thought that way. They went out as a cohort. It was a unit that went out to fight. As a matter of fact, you and I are no match for the powers of darkness individually, but we are if we're in a collective unit. You see, when the Romans went out to fight, and listen, they conquered the whole world. How did they go about doing that? You know, they fought in a unit, and they put their shields together. That's interesting. They actually attacked as a unit, and the second row, because they didn't all get in the front row, the second row was there, and so the first unit put their shields in front of them. There was the size of a door, and they held it with their left hand. They had their right hand on their sword, and the man next to him put his shield so that it was protecting the man beside him. How many are catching on? One of the reasons why we struggle is because we're not watching each other. We got to go as a unit. What did the second row do? As the fiery darts of the enemy were shooting down on them and they would put it with pitch and shoot fiery arrows. No wonder Paul describes it, you know, the fiery darts of the enemy. He's talking about these guys, these archers shooting up in, onto this group, but the second row, they take their shields and they put them on top of their heads. So the front row is covered and the back row is covered and they, you know what, they're protecting themselves and they call this formation the tortoise. And that's how the Romans fought. They advanced like this. And so if the church is going to be effective, we have to do this together. Are you seeing it? You're not going to overcome evil by yourself. Well, the second key to victorious living is not only understanding the source of evil, but understanding how to overcome our adversary. Now, it's interesting, the meaning of wilderness as a place of protection and care. And I've said this. Some of you have heard this before because I preached this in the summer five and a half years ago. So if you're all new, you didn't hear this. Plus, I've added a few things this morning. But here's what you need to know. The wilderness can be understood in two ways. One, it's understood. Well, let me read the text first. It says, the woman fled into the wilderness. Where did, Mary, where did Joseph take Mary and, jo and Jesus? To Egypt, it was a wilderness. He took him to the wilderness. A place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. In other words, for a time. Not, a, not forever, a time. But you know the Bible, it has two different opposing meanings, the wilderness. See, the wilderness 
could be a place of testing. Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness. He was tested. Israel was in the wilderness 40 years. They were tested. See, a place of testing. But it's also a place where God reveals himself to us. Because when Israel came out of Egypt, where did she go? Into the wilderness. She went to the mountain of God. God revealed himself to her as a people. They became a people there. The wilderness is a place where God wants to reveal himself to us. You know, a lot of times we have trials in our lives and we get really upset about it. Why am I going through this wilderness? Well, it's two things. It's a place of testing, but it's also a place of revelation. Some of the most difficult things that you'll walk through in your life if you come out of it on the other side will help you to become a better person. You'll become stronger. You'll have a deeper understanding of who God is. Listen to what Hosea the prophet, God said through him. He said, now I'm going to allure her here and I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards, make the valley of Accor door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. What's God talking about here through Hosea? He's saying, listen, I want you to come back to your first love. You know, think about when you were first dating, some of you got married. Hopefully, you know, this was a person you wanted to spend the rest of your life with. That's why you got married to them. Go back to that moment. That's called the first love, okay? When you go, this is a person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. Think about this now. But as time goes along in your marriage, you know, you can, you know, well, we're drifting apart. We have self-interest, and we start moving in different directions. And then people tell me, because I'm the pastor, well, pastor, we just drifted apart. What are you telling me? You didn't work at your relationship? That's what you're telling me. Come on now. You know, when people go, well, you know, I, I, I've lost my first love for God. I've just drifted. Yeah, people drift spiritually. That's what happens. They drift away. Come on. They start living for other values and other priorities and other things in their lives, but they're missing out on that beautiful relationship they had at the very beginning, that most meaningful time. That's why God calls us back to our first love. That's why God is calling us, saying, hey, wake up. Come, in, come into this wilderness. Get to reacquainted. Let's reconnect. How important is this? It's critical, Right? I want you to rediscover this level of intimacy with me. See, otherwise we're going to be drifting. The defeat of our enemies and their, their, their status in this world. And the war, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. There was a battle going on. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. I want you to notice that line. The whole world has gone astray. You know, we act shocked like people are gone astray. I'm going, no, that's reality. Why are we surprised? The devil has deceived the nations. Can you not see it? Why are we acting like this is a strange thing? He was hurled to earth and his angels with him. Now we see what's going on here. Here we have that great cosmic battle between God's angels led by Michael who's described in the book of Daniel as a prince to the nation of Israel and to God's people, the new Israel. 
the church. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as had not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Do you know your name is written in a book if you're a child of God? Isn't that beautiful? You know, I'm, I'm preparing lessons on 1 Corinthians. And I, I just finished teaching the first eight chapters. And I never realized this, but the man that was excommunicated, he committed a crime not just against the church and against God. He committed a crime that was, that was legally a problematic to the Corinthians, as bad as they were. And you know what they would do to people when they, if they found them guilty of this charge? They would excommunicate them from the city and they would take away all their assets and remove their name as a member of that community. That's pretty strong imagery, isn't it? Thank God our names are in the book of life. That's the most important thing, folks. We're part of a citizenship. We're part of a heavenly city. We're part of the new Jerusalem. Your name is written in that book. That's important stuff. There's a warfare going on. Well, I've run out of time like I did in the first service, so I'm gonna just come to the very end of the sermon. I know, it's, it's fine. Totally relaxed about it. But let me just say this. John assumes I'm quoting Craig Cooster. He says that people order their lives as an eye to what they believe has ultimate place. In other words, what we think is important in our life. The dragon personifies deception, brutality, arrogance, and injustice. It's easy to see why people might think those forces run our world and why they might respond by simply giving in and going along. That's the temptation. Don't make any noise, just give in and go along. John, however, recognizes that the force of evil operate in part by trying to breed a cynical complacency about the world. He challenges the idea that destructive forces can have ultimate place by showing that the power of the creator is superior to and different from that of the destroyers. He calls on his readers to give their allegiance to what gives life and not capitulate to the force that brings death. So what is John trying to tell us in these texts? And I'll give you an I'll give you somewhat, somewhat to read. How many know there's a hidden conflict going on right now? We just don't see it, but it's very real. But if we don't stand up to it with spiritual weapons, we're gonna lose. So what are the spiritual weapons, Pastor? I'm gonna give you one right now that you and I know it's important, but we really don't know how much it's important. Prayer. Prayer. See, if we really believed was what prayer does, we'd pray more. But since we don't really, we say we believe it, but we don't because we don't pray to, to make me think that we really believe it. But think about how John describes prayer in the book of Revelation. He calls it reverse thunder. He says, when you and I pray, it's like lightning and thunder coming back from heaven down to earth. How many go, that's a pretty graphic picture of the environment being transformed. How many of you have ever been in a deep thunder, lightning storm? How many have ever been in one of those? How many go, the whole atmosphere has been changed? How many know that's kind of a terrifying moment? Can I tell you something? Our prayers are terrifying to the powers of darkness, but we don't see it that way. We think, well, it's just me praying. It's ineffective. Listen, can I tell you something? We had nine people here Tuesday night praying. We prayed for people to get saved, and already two people have come to Christ. Already, two. Nine people. 
What am I trying to tell you? There's power in this. Let me give you another weapons of our warfare, not carnal. See, we argue with people. You're never going to change a person's mind. I stopped arguing in my 20s. I'm being honest. You don't win an argument. You don't win the person. You might win the argument. You're not winning the person. Why? Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. You know what? You don't overcome evil by rendering evil. You don't win arguments by just continually arguing. You know how you win? By loving, by forgiving, by blessing, by giving. Isn't that powerful? We've got to think differently. If we operate the same level as society, we're going to be just in their court. We have to operate on a different level. Well, let me close with this. We have a chance to take a stand for Christ. Truth and righteousness, or we back away. We either make a decision, I'm going to really go for God, no matter what the pushback is, or I'm going to be in big time trouble. I recognize that. And so I'm going to close my sermon with a word of prayer, so I'm going to have a stand as we do that. And we're going to stand. I'm going to pray. I'm not going to call you forward like I did last week, but I do want to make mention of something, and I don't do this very often, but, you know, I figure almost a third of our church is new in the last four or five years. Some of you don't know this. The sermon I preached today, parts of it come from this book. This Revelation is the most difficult book in the Bible to understand, no question. And, I, I, and I've studied it for over 40 years. That's a long time. And the, the two years before I preached that series, I spent extra time studying it. I know all the different viewpoints. I know the contemporary viewpoint. It's all nice. But I, I'm really convinced that what I share in these messages, what I share in this book, and what I share today, parts of it, are from a chapter in this book. Not all of it. This is important stuff. Why? I'll tell you why. Because I think a lot of people are confused. You know, we're just speculating on a bunch of stuff we have no idea. Think back. Who was this written to? First century believers. That's who it was written to. The what I just described right now, they would get this. This is first. They would understand this. Whatever this book means, it has to mean something to the people that was originally written to. That's, that makes sense to me. I don't know about this makes sense to you, but it makes total sense to me. I think they understood it better than the 21st century people. That's my opinion. And so this book was designed to encourage us, not to frighten us. Actually, it says, blessed are you if you read it. It was written to a minority group under great persecution. It was written to inspire them and encourage them that good triumphs over evil. And when you're being crushed by evil, you need to have hope that one day this is going to turn. And I want to declare to you, it will turn. You and I are on the right side. We just got to use the right weapons. Amen? We're not fighting with the people out there. You're not, those people are not against you. They are not against you. They just don't understand. They need a revelation from the Holy Spirit to understand. They need the curtain pulled back. They need to see the power of darkness behind it. If they, have, if they saw that in truth, they would be shocked because they think they're doing a good thing. I'm serious about that. There needs to be an awakening. And I believe there needs to be awakening in the church. I'm convinced of it now. The church needs to awake. Because I think we've succumbed to the ways of this world and the way we deal with things. We need to have a more biblical and scriptural approach to the problem. A 
of evil. Amen? Let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, we know there's evil in our world. We see it all the time. It's all around us. It's confronted us. As a matter of fact, sometimes we're struggling with evil within us. We're tempted by sin. I pray today, Father, that you would deliver us from the evil one. That's a prayer request that you taught us how to pray. I believe you want to do that. You want to lead us not into temptation. You want to deliver us from the evil one. You want us to walk in the spirit. You want us to use the weapons that you have given to us. And they're not carnal. They're not fleshly. But they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Lord, we need to pull them down in our own lives first of all. But we also need to do this collectively. Father, I pray that you put in our hearts a spirit of prayer and supplication. I pray that you would awaken our hearts, Lord, that there would be a, a new spirit within us, a desire and a longing for you. And Father, that we get our priorities straightened out. They would recognize that the battle does belong to you. You've already won the battle, but that we just have to stand now in this evil day. We just need to stand. Help us to have the moral courage to just stand. And having done all, stand. And having on the armor of God. Lord, make that real to us in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave. I brought a bunch of books today because I knew that some of you would be interested. They're at the Information Center.